All right. Productivity. Um, thanks for making it through 10 classes. I thought we'd take a couple of minutes to review and kind of go over where we've come from and then, and then spend some time looking at what we should do from here. Um, so starting in January, we started looking at, at this course on vocation. What am I called to do and to be? And we started with a look at uh, sort of the philosophy of calling. First week was the context of it, the caller and the called. Um, your life is not your own. God's the caller, and we're the ones that are called. We're going to find our calling in him and expressly in his word. Uh, we are to love Christ uh, by obedience to his call and thus pursue our purpose, which is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We looked at the concept of calling in general, that you and I are part of a royal priesthood and that all work that's done for the Lord is sacred. It has meaning and it has worth. We learned that God loves his people through his people and that loving your neighbor as you love yourself is a framework through which we can understand better our callings. What is it that we need to do? How do we need to do it? We looked at the content, the scope of it, uh, that Christ is Lord over every sphere of life, that you and I are called to glorify him and enjoy him in all things, all things great and small, uh, that the dominion mandate from Genesis and the Great Commission from Matthew are equally ultimate ends, that we do need to be pursuing transformation of the culture in a, in a redeeming way because it's, it belongs to the Lord. And we also need to be pursuing the souls of men because they too belong to the Lord. We can't have one without the other. They're all... His grace is going to impact as far as the curse is found, which is everywhere. Then we looked for four weeks at some different spheres, um, places in which we have callings. It's not just one call upon your life. You have your effectual call unto the Lord. Follow him, believe on him, be saved. And then you also have a variety of callings, depending on the domain of your life. Uh, Luther talked about the estates of life. Kuiper talked about them in terms of spheres, sphere sovereignty. Uh, but you can think of calling or vocation in terms of um, roles or responsibilities or even maybe better stations in life. Right, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a worker, I'm a church member, I'm an officer, those different stations. And they have various responsibilities and roles within them, but they also have scopes that are limited to those spheres. They don't get to cross over. Just because I am an officer in the church doesn't mean that I'm an officer in the civil sphere and I can't pull somebody over and demand that they obey me, that kind of thing. We looked at uh, calling lived out in our work, the framework applied there, and all of our labor, including our jobs, and, and even in our rest, the two go together, work and rest. Some of the common pitfalls there are idolatry, um, holding up things that ought not be in the place of Christ, uh, identity issues, 
we can, you know, when you try to find out who someone is, you ask them what it is that they do. We can identify very much with our work, and we need to be careful in doing that. Um, and even indifference, one of the pitfalls. Um, truths that we must not forget in our work. Um, we looked at calling lived out in our families. Family is the basic unit of all society. It's the institution that God set up, just like all the other institutions. He has set, he's the one who um, sets all authorities in place. And this is an institution set up by God, not by men, the family. And it's the institution through which humanity lives on, generation after generation. When we abandon God's word as to the structure and function of the family, it's devastating to all. Um, then we looked at calling lived out in our church. The church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and is marked by certain defining traits. Faithful followers of Christ will be members of his church and will obey his commandments therein. Um, we're not saved by being members of the church. Thief on the cross wasn't. But we are to be members of the church. We're commanded to be members of the church. We're commanded to... <clears throat> um, function through all of the authorities that Christ put forward for our good and his glory. We are to, remember we went through the 39 one another passages, how we're supposed to care for one another in the Lord. We looked at calling lived out in our society at large, that God has ordained and established various distinct institutions which make up his creational order. Christ governs them all, every sphere of life, and everybody must submit to his lordship. Everyone will. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess at some point. He is merciful even to the arrogant who defy him right now in that they've not been you know, smited. They have time still to repent. But he is Lord, not just spiritual, ethereal, one day in your heart somewhere, but he's Lord now over every corner of life. Kuiper said, not one square inch over which Christ does not cry, mine. Sproul says, there's not one rogue molecule in all of creation. Paul says that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God. So somehow he has dominion over everything in creation, including you and me and all things under the sun. Then we spent a couple of weeks trying to understand God's will. Uh, the first week was how not to find God's will or understand God's will or discern his, his plans for us. We looked at a lot of the, well, a lot of the ways that the world around us, and even, even in our own error, sometimes try to ascribe to God um, our own desires as if it were his will. In our biblical ignorance, we're tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, and we misunderstand not only the nature of God's will, but also the pathways of learning it. But then we spent last week um, an hour going through how to actually, how does the Bible tell us that we ought to know what it is that God has for you and for me? How is it that we understand our callings and what our roles and responsibilities and our duties are in each of those spheres. How do we live that out? How do we make decisions 
day by day, not just big categorical things like love Jesus and read your Bible, okay, but how do I decide which job to take and which person to marry? How do I deal with troubles that come along the path, health issues, um, ailing parents, sick kids, you know, how do you deal with those things? What is it that God wants you to do in that? God's a good father and a perfect teacher. He offers clarity and not confusion for his children. His word teaches us how to think and make decisions like him as we bear his image in the world. So in light of all that, today we're going to look at the topic of productivity. Stewarding our most limited resource, time, and energy, and everything else too. But um, Some thoughts here just to get us started. You are not your own. You exist to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Um, Both the motivation and the fruit of our work and our labor and our lives, both the why and the what, matter. Um, If we have time, I would like to talk about technology as a tool in this productive time, or productive pursuit. Um, Technology as a form of wealth. The Bible doesn't talk a lot about technology directly, but it talks a lot about wealth and how to steward that. Uh, and, And technology is a form of wealth that's to be leveraged for the kingdom in our limited time here under the sun. Um, So question for you all as we get started. Having that memory jog just now, what are some of the things that you've learned over the past quarter? Um, We've had nine hours together. Um, Maybe it wasn't something that you learned, but just something that you you were reminded of that you already knew. But is there anything, what has stood out to you as memorable or important through some of the content that we've covered. Well, the last lesson, you know, to me, the thing that stood out particularly was you said that God doesn't care what job we take necessarily as long as we're a good worker. doesn't necessarily have to one person be the marriage as long as you're a good husband. Or where should you live? It's not that important Great way of picture. It's a comfort, and not just a safety net. Like, oh, good, we can fall back. But it feels good to be loved by a father. Anything else? This is not just for my ego. This is for us. This is for us to to think through together. I'm sure there's more. It's okay. It's early. Um, so I want to start by just going over, sounds kind of maybe backwards, but giving you the references um, for this class. There's no way in the world for me to try to condense everything that I've 
read or thought about productivity and stewardship into 50 hours, much less into one. Um, so I thought I would pick out four um, resources that maybe you would like to pursue. And, and I'm going to go through one of them in a little bit more depth today. Um, two of them are written by Christian authors from Christian perspectives, and two of them are written by, even though sacred-secular divide, by people who aren't professing Christians. So I'm going to call them secular, but you know what I mean. Um, I did think that it was interesting. <clears throat> these are the secular books, and these are the Christian books. <clears throat> so somebody's trying to prove their, <clears throat> their themselves. Um, it's like 100 to 150 pages and 300 or so each. Um, but the first one is a book by um, a guy named Reagan Rose called Redeeming Productivity, Getting More Done for the Glory of God. This is the one we're going to spend a good bit of time on today. Um, it's put up by Moody Publishers in 2022, so it's the newest of the flock here. Um, He's the founder of Redeeming Productivity, a, min, a media ministry focused on biblical approach to personal productivity. Reagan's the director of digital platforms at John MacArthur's Grace to You Ministry and has a, an, MD, an MDiv from the Master Seminary. He lives in Michigan with his wife and their two kids. Um, the second book is uh, called Productivity. Productivity, A Practical Theology of Work and Wealth by Douglas Wilson. Wilson's the author of more than 100 books and has been a pastor for 40 years or so. He's the founder of a K-12 school, a liberal arts college, a denomination, an international classical education organization, and he blogs a lot. Uh, he's been married to Nancy for more than 40 years, and they have three grown children, and he says hordes of grandchildren. I don't know how many that is, but it's like 20-something, I think. This was published by Canon Press in 2020. These are the two most recent. Um, I don't think we're going to have time to get into this, so I'll just tell you this now. Um, this would be the book to talk about technology. The first half of it is basically a theology of, of technology, of work, of use of it. Um, it's the one that talks about <clears throat> technology as a form of wealth. And so it, there's an exploration in Scripture as to how you can understand technology from God's perspective. And to give you an example... Um, as I was thinking about, it. I don't know if it's in the, I don't remember if it's in the book or not, um, but it's one that stuck with me as I was explaining it to someone else. Um, you know, the phones that we carry around with are are like ten thousand servants. If you think about King Solomon, the greatest man ever in wealth and wisdom, who was blessed by God because he chose wisdom over all the other things, and God gave him everything else. If he had a question. And he wanted to pursue an answer to. He would have to rouse half dozen servants, give them, you know, wagons, resources, money, send them down the road, maybe to Alexandria, to the big library there. They'd be gone for weeks. They'd have to pay to access those things, try to find someone there who was learned enough to help them sort out what was where, look up the answer pack back up, carry that all the way back, and then tell him. And if he had a follow-on question, okay. It cost a lot of time and money for even the wealthiest and wisest of men to be able to 
pursue knowledge. But I can talk to that thing, and it will look it up. I can even tell chat GPT to write it out in a poem or in some you know, great prose that I can read while I'm in the waiting room somewhere. We have an enormous amount of wealth, leverage that no other you know, people in history have ever been able, been able to appreciate. Moore's Law, you know how the information doubles and technology grows so rapidly. He just passed away this week. But it is, it is just so fast-paced in terms of how, um, how much that is growing. And so there is a, a, a deep need to steward that type of wealth, that type of power over your soul. You know, it's not just good things that can happen from technology. It's bad things. The youth had their um, youth retreat this week. I was there on Friday night and Saturday morning. And that's a lot of what they talked about. It was this theme was reset, like trying to get the youth not so addicted to their phones and you know, helping them to understand the good and the bad and how to steward that well. So it's a topic uh, very worth all of our times. It doesn't matter how old you are. Those are the two Christian books, and they do have, um, they do have a lot of practical how-tos. Um, I, I, the, the Plot Activity book, Rebecca Merkel is Doug Wilson's, uh, one of his daughters, and she gives the foreword, and she's talking about how uh, you know, he, he plods along and will chew up books in the three-minute ride to and from his office every day, and he'll get through 50 books a year that way. Um, he, you know, there's never a time where he's not trying to redeem the time and take take care of everything. But she said he's not one of those guys that you know his hair's about to fall out and he's always on edge. Anytime the kids would come and say, "Dad, can we spend some time together?" Of course, and he would just set it down. So there's this ability to try to find a balance where we're trying to be efficient and redeem the time because the days are evil, but also not making you know an idol out of this pursuit of productivity. So these two books are great in terms of the theology behind and some practical stuff. In it. The last two, um, Atomic Habits, An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones by James Clear. This was put out by uh, Avery. It's an imprint of Penguin Random House in 2018, so a couple years earlier than Plot Activity. And the takeaway there, there's a lot. I mean, it's really good. It's, I've read it a number of times now. But the, th the thing that I've used the most often from that is uh, Clear says, if you care about the goal, focus on the system. It is so easy for us to get into a rhythm, you know, and just kind of float on by and not, not, really give us, not, not really give intentionality to what we're doing. We don't really assess ourselves all that well even when we try to, but we rarely even try to. And... We kind of quarantine ourselves off from others. We're in the burbs. You know, you don't really shoulder to shoulder pass people by on the street. You have to get in your car to go to a place. And there's really not a lot of, you have to be intentional even about connect, connection. And so having other people, iron sharpening iron doesn't really happen either unless you're intentional about that too. So it's easy for us to just drift. We get into a, a groove. And he, he would say, if you're, if you're wanting to accomplish a given end, look at the environment around it. What, what environment have you created and what's helping and hurting those goals? And um, I, I relate that to the, the notion from 
scripture that says a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So that means I'm supposed to be handing things down even after I'm gone. So I can't do that directly. I have to have some kind of system in place that's going to allow that to occur. Part of that's raising up my kids in such a way that then they'll repeat what I've done. That's a system. Maybe there's other things. And then lastly, uh, Deep Work by Cal Newport. Rules for focused success in a distracted world. Um, we, we live in a very distracted world, hyper-distracted. Um, and it's hard to focus. My boss and I, he's an elder here, we talk about, he, he calls it the, the, the latent speed of focus or something like that. He's headier than I am. Um, but the idea of, you know, you're, you're working and you're trying to write whatever you're doing and someone comes and, and hey, can I ask you a quick question? Sure. Let's say that takes 60 seconds. Well, it's not 60 seconds away from your work. It's minutes. Because now you've got to take this off, shift, focus on what it is that they're saying, listen and try to give them a response, disconnect from that, come back to what you were doing, re-engage the same way that, you know, it's a, it, and, we, and that happens hundreds of times daily. And so... Um, he has some, some more thoughts, practical thoughts on schedules and environment and how to steward your time and your days and your resources and just understanding how, how, we, how we think and operate. It's good to know, know yourself to kind of overcome that. So, so those are my recommendations from a practical level and from a sort of a theological level on, on productivity. But back to the wine. All the way back in January, at the beginning of this class, I told you all that this course, or the goal of this course, is for students to discover, or maybe rediscover, as the case may be, the wisdom and love of God in his various callings upon our lives, so that we may run the race set before us well, and by his grace at work in us, we might accomplish more of that which he has purposed us to do and to be, namely, to glorify God and enjoy him forever as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, proclaiming the virtues of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12 says, Beloved, I urge you all as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Put off the old, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Put on the new. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. God is glorious in and of himself. He has endemic glory. And I can't do anything to change that. Can't add to it. Can't take it away. God is God. I am not. So when we're talking about glorifying God, we're talking about glory that we ascribe to him or that we encourage and incite others to ascribe to him, to praise his name. His name is holy. We're not adding to that holiness. We're recognizing it in our words and in our hearts and in our lives and our actions. And we want to live in such a way that the whole world does that because he deserves it.
Jesus teaches us in Matthew 6 that we are not to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be also. He goes on to warn us that we'll be tempted to serve the treasures here on on earth. Our hearts will naturally uh, drift that way. In the flesh, we want fleshly things. But he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or God and fame. Or God and health. Or God and anything. This causes an ongoing tension within our hearts. It's not something that we just one day resolve and never have to return to, but rather it's something that we continuously have to discipline ourselves in order to pursue. As Jesus teaches elsewhere in Matthew 16, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You all heard that. But God gave us multiple accounts of his gospel. And in Luke's account, remember, he's the, he's the doctor, the learned man, and he has a more precise pen. He says, um, you know, Luke says at the beginning of his gospel that he investigated everything from the beginning and is writing an orderly account so that you may know the certainty of the things that have been taught. And when he recounts that teaching, he makes sure to include a more full quote. If anyone, Jesus says, would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow. It is a thing that we have to do daily. Habits matter. Productivity matters. Time is limited. How are we going to act out our callings, live out our callings, obey Christ, glorify him in what we do so that people would ascribe glory to his name? Back to the Matthew account. Jesus goes on graciously and lovingly and with great compassion and understanding of our weak and fallen frame. He says that we are not to be anxious about any of those earthly concerns that we know about, right? Um, About your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. He then asks a question to help us understand the context behind such a command against worry. And he asks... Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And what's the answer we're supposed to immediately understand? Of course, life's more than food and clothes. Birds have ample food and flowers are clothed in beauty, but they're nowhere close to as valuable as human beings, as you and as me. As those creatures who God made in his own image and who he loved so much that he sent his only begotten son to live, die, and be resurrected from the dead so that we could be saved and reconciled to him. Of course your life is worth more than food and clothes and shelter. It's worth more than your income. It's worth more than the size of your house. It's worth more than your status in the world. It's worth more than the bottom line. It's worth more than the productivity metric, whatever it is that you are measured by. 
how many teeth you pull, Michael, or what, you know, whatever it is. Um, how many cases you close, Nathan, you know. Um, how many flights you land, <laughs> you know. Um, that was pretty important. <laughs> um, but, but our lives are worth more than those things. <clears throat> He then gives us a command. He says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? But rather seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added to you. So these are our marching orders when it comes to the productive Christian life. This is how it is that we are to bear much fruit. So to that end, we're going to look. At one of the books that I mentioned um, in, in fair detail for the next 20 minutes. Um, and I'm going to use, I'll tell you, I'm going to use a, um, a resource. I'm quoting a bunch from Redeeming Productivity and from this cool new, I don't know what it's called, a company website I found because I've been on the road with. Um, taking care of family um, I needed a little help so acceleratebooks.com acceleratebooks.com is a Christian ministry that helps to summarize and provide Christian um, teachings or consolidated teachings from Christian books to Christian audience it's like 400 books in the library but they're growing it it's pretty good. So if you don't have a ton of time to get through, uh, you know, an 800-page tome and you want to see, is it worth it? Well, go over to Accelerate Books. It's not commercial. I'm not paid, blah, blah, blah. But, um, and, and you can get a pretty good scan of what's going on. I'm using uh, some of part of what they put out because I know that I'm a little verbose and I knew that we wouldn't have time to, um, to get through everything. So I'm just going to use the front part of his outline with my notes added to it. All right, so in this book, Redeeming Productivity, there are three core perspectives on Christian productivity that I think we should take away. The first one is, your life is not your own. The Christian concept of productivity is rooted in the realization that we belong to God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Reagan Rose says, It's my life is a radical and often rebellious mode of thinking. It's my life. It's the attitude behind our insistence that we don't owe anything to anyone and that no one can tell us what to do. This message is found in the movies we watch, in the books we read, in the songs we listen to. Even the advice we give and receive from friends, and that's sadly true both in and outside of the church. Rose says that it's the background of every secular work on productivity. He's read a bunch. And this lie that it's my life tends to result in one of two errors with respect to productivity. <clears throat> on the one hand, laziness and apathy. And on the other, Selfishness and greed. Laziness and apathy. The first way it's my life thinking can lead us astray is by causing us to believe productivity is entirely unimportant. 
This is the mindset of people who appear to be aimless and adrift. These people care little about getting things done or accomplishing much of anything. But it's not that they lack motivation. He says, rather, these people are motivated by the conviction that their life belongs to them. Thus, these people believe they are entitled to a life of leisure and pleasure. Maybe know people like that. Um, maybe you know yourself. That's one ditch that you can fall into when you believe that my life is my own and I can make it what I want to be. The second, the other side of the ditch, is uh, the other side of the road, is selfishness and greed. And he says, the second way it's my life thinking expresses itself regarding personal productivity is in prioritizing productivity for the wrong reasons. While the Christian pursues personal productivity because of the design of creation, the glory of God, and the hope of eternal reward, the non-Christian pursues it for very different reasons. The non-Christian seeks to be productive for selfish, short-sighted reasons. Rose says, the motivation for working harder and getting more done was always so I could be happier, so that I could be more successful, so that I could get richer. The focus was always on me. The first pillar of productivity must be redeemed is the origin of our productivity. The world says you belong to yourself, but the Bible says your life is a stewardship from God, a gift that must be used in service to God for his glory. He says you simply cannot speak about productivity very long before talking about why we care about it. The origin of a Christian's interest in productivity ought to be radically different from that of a person who does not know Christ. And just note, uh, radically, we hear that a lot. That comes from the Latin word radix, which just means root. So our motivation ought to be rooted differently from the, from the bottom. It doesn't just need to look differently in the fruit. It, look, it needs to be grounded somewhere differently. Every philosophy of productivity contains a theology. That's true of everything, but let me say that again. Every philosophy of productivity contains a theology. And that's something that we all need to understand and never forget. Neutrality is a myth. You will never receive a non-biased thought from another person. It just won't happen. It's not whether but which. There's always a worldview at play, and you need to be wise and discerning Christians. People love the book, who test everything and cling only to that which is good, both root and fruit, both the what and how as well as the why. So that's number one. The first part is your life is not your own. Second, you exist to glorify God. The Christian concept of productivity is driven by the glory of God. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, what is the chief end of man? Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Many personal productivity books are quick to get goals out as the key to productivity. What's your goal? Make them smart. And those things are good to do. <clears throat> he says, uh, goals are great, but we need to start with a more fundamental question. Why? Why am I here? What's the higher purpose of all my goals? What's the ultimate point of being productive? These questions reveal a fatal flaw in all secular approaches to personal productivity. They may be able to tell you how to set goals and how to accomplish them, but they'll never be able to tell you which goals you ought to pursue and why. No productivity expert can tell you what your ultimate goal should be. The answer to that question must come from God, because he made you, and he owns you. Like nails on the chalkboard, 
in, in Western ears, right? You are owned by God. He made you, you were his to begin with, and he bought you back at a price after you rebelled against him. He doubly owned you. To be clear, this does not mean that Christians cannot learn and benefit from secular writers. It does mean, however, that Christians need to be honest about this reality. If your favorite self-development guru is not a believer in Jesus Christ, then he or she does not share the same ultimate life goal as you. Additionally, Christians who uncritically adopt the systems of secular thinkers inevitably end up adopting the values of those same thinkers. Think about the mentors that you have at work or the teachers that you've had at school, <clears throat> the, the neighbors and friends that you look up to. You become like who you are around. Jesus said in Luke 6.40 that the student is not above the teacher, but when his training is complete, he will be like his teacher. It's not whether but which. You will become like that to which you surround yourself, devote yourself. So pay attention and choose carefully. Summing it up, Rose says, productivity flows from purpose. <clears throat> this means that Christians must understand who they are as image bearers and why God created them in the first place. <clears throat> Christians must understand that man's chief end, our greatest and most fundamental purpose, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Only when we understand that God created us for his glory will we be prepared to think rightly about productivity. So here's a few quotes on this chapter, or this section actually. Um, Christians have a different value system from the world. We have a different purpose, and that should change how we approach everything in life, including our productivity. When you follow the path of personal productivity to its logical conclusion, you always end up at religion. There's always a why behind it. Without knowing who you are and why you're here, there will be no controlling purpose that unites your productive efforts, no chief end to all of that toil. When we talk about glorifying God, what we really mean is ascribing glory to him. Glorifying God is regarding him as worthy of praise. If you're anything like me, and, and you have a moment or two to sit down and reflect, I had some pretty long drive recently, so I've thought more than normal maybe, and it's embarrassing how little I even think about God in the midst of the things that I do day by day, much less how little intentionality I give to directing the things that I do day by day in such a way as to ascribe glory to his name. Have you changed a diaper for the glory of God? Planted a, a tree or a shrub? You know, checked your email for the glory of God? cooked a meal, you know, vacuumed the room, whatever. We're supposed to. <clears throat> so how do we do it? Like, I mean, we do do those things. Uh -huh. So how is it necessarily for the glory of our purpose? 
I'll answer that in two ways. One is a cop-out, where I think that uh, it takes brothers and sisters in the Lord talking together, getting to know one another and what they're actually doing and how that applies so that someone could give you a more thorough answer. But since I know you a little bit, and since this is true and applies to everybody, um, I, I do think that the way that Christ summarized the law is very practical in its application. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When I'm changing Abby's diaper, I'm serving as her father, and in that vocation, in that calling, in that station of life for me right now, my roles and responsibility, my, my, my children are my neighbor in that, in that calling. And she needs me to do that for her because she can't do it for herself. And so I can either begrudgingly do it, or I can recognize that God's given me the privilege of taking care of this beautiful little girl and make it fun and make her smile and have a good time in it and thank God for diapers, you know, and, and, and every other thing. <clears throat> so I think it takes, it takes thoughtfulness. It's, it's, it's not a, there's not a, an umbrella answer, but <clears throat> those are the two lenses, love God and love your neighbor, that really help. Um, and, then, and then there's other things, too, because not everything's... I mean, as fun as changing diet was not really fun, but not everything's even that, you know, simple. Um, how do you, how do you how do you care for someone who's really sick and hurting, and and is not themselves, and maybe says things that are hurtful and does things that you wish they wouldn't, those kind of things, but you know they're under. How do you love someone when it's hard to love them? Well, you know. God tells us to count in all joy when you face trials of various kinds because those things shape us more and more into the image of Christ. Our ultimate telos is to be made just like Christ, not in his glorious self, but he's firstborn among many brethren. And so we can be thankful even even when hard times come, even when we're doing things that are rough. um, Without grumbling, right? Yeah. Yeah, I know you say that to your kids. I have to do it to mine too. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. And, and with the promise that your labor is not in vain. That's helpful to me. And I have to walk by faith and not by sight on that one sometimes because I don't feel like my labor is all that productive sometimes. I don't feel like it's appreciated. Um, but anything that we do unto the Lord is. And it's appreciated perfectly by a perfect God. Those are good questions, and, 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 and worth a lot of... There's also, there's, there's a staggered balance mm. where that child you're changing the diaper and trying to, you know, scramble off the table or whatever, you know, you're, gonna, you're dealing in crisis. Yes, ma'am. So, at that point, you're not necessarily... All reflective and... <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. we can't beat ourselves up exactly. if we're not in the moment. And that's part of what we're going to wrap up with is, you know, God has taken into account our frame. He's not thrown off course by our sinfulness. If he couldn't do things through sinful people, nothing would get done. All right. (laughs) 
Sure. They're just babies, and I'm just hoping that whatever I'm reading to them as babies, that somehow it's falling on them right. by faith. Sure. But it's also the productivity of what they're nursing and reading the Bible. It's mm-hmm. out loud to sure. my babies. So. It's good. God works all those things together for good that are in Christ. All those things. Um, all right. What you do is not your purpose. It's how you fulfill your ultimate purpose. So some reflection questions, which we won't have time to reflect on, uh, but you can noodle on them later. What might change in your work life if you worked as though your highest aim was to ascribe glory to God in your work? What about your family life, your friendships, your leisure, your health, some of the things we're talking about? So the, the first thing was your life is not your own. The second, you exist to glorify God. And the third perspective here, you must be eternally motivated. The Christian concept of productivity is motivated and maintained by the hope of eternal reward. I need to hurry. All right, sorry. Um, I was going to talk about the parable of the talents, but you kind of, kind of get that. Um, he says, if we, redeem, if we want to redeem productivity, we need to understand that someday we will give an account for our lives to God. The world says to be productive so you can get more from this life, but the Bible says to be productive so that you can gain more in the next life. He says there are four, uh, <clears throat> essentially there are four earthly rewards that are often chased by the world and even by us. Money, peace, praise, and legacy. Money. Uh, most, product, most productivity books are geared towards business people. The promise of secular productivity is a life of financial prosperity. Money is assumed to be the obvious incentive for productivity. Uh, peace. This is the desire not for wealth, but for control. People want to feel like they are in control of their lives, and people want to feel like they are not controlled by deadlines or commitments or demands. I don't know. You, I know some of you uh, used to read or knew of uh, Francis Schaeffer. He was. He had a personal peace and affluence. He talked about a lot. He quote from him, humanism, man beginning only from himself, had destroyed the old basis of values and could find no way to generate with certainty any new values. In the resulting vacuum, the impoverished values of personal peace and affluence had come to stand supreme. I think that's still true. So money and peace are two of the earthly rewards wrongly chased, but also praise and legacy. Praise. Uh, Many are motivated by the desire to be recognized. This is especially true in ministry contexts where money is often scarce and control is not possible. Many ministry leaders seek the praise of man. You all serve in different ways in the church. Recognize that that potential lies within you. And then legacy. The fourth bad motivation for productivity is the lure of legacy. The motivation is just the praise of... uh, This motivation is just the praise of men in a more palliable form. Legacy is the praise of others that rebounds into the future. You guys watched the Brad Pitt movie, um, uh, Troy, from 2004, a long time ago? All right. He played this Greek warrior, Achilles, in the the retelling of the Iliad. And there's a scene where he's supposed to be fighting on behalf of his army against the enemy. And they said, hey, let's, let's spare a lot of people's lives. We'll just get the best warrior from each side to come out. And so they had to send a messenger into the camp, this little boy, to get Achilles and say, hey, they're ready for you to come out and beat this dude up. And the little messenger boy says, the Thessalonian you're fighting, he's the biggest man I've ever seen. I wouldn't want to fight him. 
To which the prideful, self-glory-seeking Achilles looks down and says, that is why no one will remember your name. He wants glory for himself and to live on through the generation. So he's willing to die and give it all up so that he can be remembered, to make a name for himself, just like Babel. So these are four wrong motivations that the world pursues. But if, if these four rewards uh, ought not motivate Christians to productivity, then what should be the source of our motivation? Are we supposed to stop seeking reward altogether? No. Rather uh, than seeking an earthly record, uh, reward, excuse me, the Christian looks to an eternal reward. This won't take long. Um, Christians seek treasure in heaven. Matthew 6, 19-21. Um, James says that our life is but a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Christians seek a treasure not here on earth, but a treasure in heaven. Christians, we seek the peace of being with Christ. Philippians 4 4 through 9, um, we are promised in this passage both the peace of God and the God of peace. Let me read this. Eh, okay, yeah, let me read this quickly. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness or your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So Christians seek treasure in heaven. We seek the peace of being with Christ, and we seek the word of commendation from the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much and enter into the joy of your master. Parable of the talents. Um, I'm going to skip these, some of these quotes and just, just wrapping up some, some summary thoughts. In all of our efforts to grow in personal productivity, we need to keep our humanity and our finitude in mind. These realities remind us that our pursuit of productivity, uh, that in our pursuit of productivity, we're doomed to fail. Surprise, you're not going to hit your mark. For one thing, we will fail at productivity because we're human. Simply put, you're a creature, not the creator. While God is certainly able to achieve all of his goals and aims, we are not. Second, you are going to be sinfully unfaithful at times with your time and your energy and your opportunities, your attitudes. Right? I mean, look back on last week. You know, I sunk that ship already this weekend. That's not okay in terms of the sin. We need to repent of that. But it is okay in the sense that God has made provision for sinners in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. By faith in Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness of our sins, past, present, and future. And so that burden can be lifted. And not just spiritually in my heart, that, that those things, but he's going to make sure if I fail in my fatherhood, in my, in my provision for my family, 
Do you think he's going to let my kids starve? No, he loves them more than I do. God is a provider, and he, he provides in the midst of our failings. So, last thing. Um, all right. When you take seriously God's call to be fruitful and to redeem the time for him, it's easy to beat yourself up when you inevitably fall short. So I want to leave you with this final piece of encouragement. You're going to fail. You're going to overcommit. You're going to break promises. You're going to fail to meet your goals. You're going to waste time. You're going to procrastinate. You're going to have unfinished to-do lists. And you will end many days feeling entirely unproductive. God is not thrown off course by our failures. He's God. He knew they were coming before we did, and he's able and willing to restore us to himself and set us back on course to continue, just as Eugene Peter said, excuse me, Eugene Peterson said, uh, into our long obedience in the same direction. Right? It's a great book. You should read it. Um, Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So we can rest. Work hard. Don't be lazy. Don't be apathetic. Don't slap Christ in the face with your I don't care or with your self-centeredness or any of those things. Don't, don't make an excuse, but also don't make an idol out of those pursuits. Christ is above all of those things. And know that he's holding you in his hand and no one will snatch you out of it. You can't even jump out of it yourself. The Christian faith is a comprehensive worldview that impacts every area of our lives. <clears throat> this certainly includes our work, and our attempts to be productive. Only when we have our theological foundation right can we start to build productive practices that truly honor God. Let me pray and we can go to worship this God. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for all that you've taught us. Help us to daily pursue you in your word and in prayer. Help us to grow in our understanding. Help us to, to grow in our wisdom. Help us to experience and, and live out the fruit of your Holy Spirit one of which is self-control. Help us to be able to give our lives over to you as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto you, to seek first the kingdom and your righteousness and to trust you for everything that we need. We love you and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.